Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Daniel Harrison, the author of Live at Jackson Station, Music, Community, and Tragedy in a Southern Blues Bar. Daniel, welcome to the journal. Thank you, Walter. I'm happy to be here today. First of all, let's tell our listeners a little bit about you. Yes, you're a professor at Lander College, but who are your folks? Where'd you come from and all that stuff? Sure. Well, um, I was actually born across the pond in Stratford-on-Avon in England, and I came to the States in 1980 and uh, moved to Denver, Colorado. And uh, then I'm, the family moved down to Gainesville, Florida in 1987, and so that was my first experience really with the South. And I finished up my last two years of high school in Gainesville, and then I went down to New College, the Honors College of the State of Florida system, and got my bachelor's degree um, in social sciences. And then I took a year off, and I went out to San Francisco, and I temped for Wells Fargo Bank. And then in the fall of uh, 1994, I enrolled in Florida State University in a doctoral program in sociology in Tallahassee, and I got my master's in 1996, I did my uh, master's thesis on uh, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. And then I uh, continued on and finished my PhD at Florida State University in 2000 with a dissertation on Harrison White, who's a uh, network theorist working kind of the structural tradition in uh, sociological theory. My first academic appointment was back out in Colorado at Western State College. It was a little bit too cold for me and quite expensive in Colorado, and so I decided to come back to the South, and I had a one-year position at uh, Furman University, and that's when I heard about Lander and uh, applied for a job at, at Lander and soon was the chair of the Department of uh, Political and Social Sciences, and I've been there ever since, although I'm, I'm no longer chair. My research interests include historical sociology, the sociology of music, environmental sociology, and, uh, and a few other interests. I typically teach introduction to sociology, sociological theory, and also the uh, senior capstone experience at Lander. Okay. Well, you have lost your <laughs> accent, sir. <laughs> yes, I think I lost my accent within about uh, maybe eight weeks of being in the States. Uh, that's what my mother tells me. When you're about eight years old, all the kids tend to make fun of you uh, if you if you sound different. Although people tell me that I've, I've picked up a bit of a, a, a bit of a southern twang since I've been in this neck of the woods. Okay. So the history of music or the sociology of music, I, I found that a fascinating. Obviously, that's how you got into uh, researching uh, Jackson Station. How did you hear about this? It had disappeared from the scene by the time you got to Lander. It certainly had. Uh, I moved to Greenwood in 2005. And I have been a music fan for a number of, of, of years, a big fan of, of live music in particular, a big fan of, of what people call the jam bands, um, which you would associate with, you know, kind of the, the Grateful Dead tradition. And then more recently, bands like Widespread Panic and, and Fish and, and so on and so forth. Before my wife and I got married, we used to really at, uh, love attending live music shows at places like Red Rocks and Telluride, Colorado, and, and so on. And when I moved to Greenwood, I had heard that uh, this band Widespread Panic, which hailed from Athens, Georgia, had played in the Greenwood area. And I was kind of fascinated because, you know, Greenwood's a fairly small town, population of about 20,000 or so, and, you know, about 60,000 in the county. And I started to ask around, you know, just where did widespread panic play? Because normally they play shows like Madison Square Gardens and, as I said, Red Rocks and so on and so forth. And so I asked people, was it the Greenwood Civic Center? And they said, no, it wasn't there. It was, it was some other place up, up in Hodges. And Hodges is a small town about nine miles north of, of Greenwood. And I would drive past Hodges and I would look for sign of a, of a music venue that, that, that could support a band as famous and as popular as, as Widespread Panic, and, and, and I couldn't really find one. I, I found a little hole-in-the-wall bar called Harvley's, also known as The Waterhole, which was a tiny little dive bar in Hodges, and I eventually saw what they were talking about, which was this old dilapidated railroad depot uh, at the corner of uh, 175 and U.S. 25 in Hodges. And if you drive past it, you might miss it because it, it sort of 
is really it's fairly subdued. It's seen better years. It's a little bit run down, and uh, and then I learned that that was actually where not only widespread panic had played uh, back in the day in the in the 1980s. They actually played there nine times, but a whole host of other bands yep. had, had, had played there. You know, Drink Small played there, Nappy Brown. I mean, I'm not in your particular music, but I, I recognize the names mm-hmm. in the book. Okay, so you you found out where the place was. Right. And and then I, after, after that, I, I really didn't give it too much thought for some time. A few years later, I was uh, actually hosting a music event in Greenwood. Uh, my friend John Holloway used to run a Music on Maxwell event in Uptown Greenwood, and uh, I helped bring in a musical artist by the name of Walter Salas Humara, who used to be with the band The Silos uh, in May of 2014. And I was having breakfast with uh, Walter one morning after the show, and he said, tell me about this place, Jackson Station. He had been in Atlanta, Georgia the night before and had had, had dinner with a, a fellow by the name of Jeff Calder of the uh, Southern Indie Band called the Swimming Pool Cues. And Jeff had been uh, just raving about Jackson Station, how special it was and how eclectic it was. and the owner, Gerald Jackson, and what a character he was, and and his boyfriend, and his mother, and so on and so forth. And uh, I just sort of could tell uh, vicariously that Jackson Station was a very special place. But but that still wasn't enough for me to kind of embark on a research project investigating this place. I then learned that the owner of the club, Gerald Jackson, had been uh, viciously attacked in the parking lot in April of 1990 uh, by a patron, and it was a vicious, vicious crime. And it sounded to me like it had all the characteristics of a hate crime. And so I decided that uh, that that was enough to warrant kind of further investigation on my part. And here we are, you know, six plus years later with the story. By the time you start working in terms of uh, the bar, most of the main characters are gone. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Gerald's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, his partner, Steve, is gone. Yes. Was his mother still around? No, his mother passed away in 2010. Okay. Well, the principal actors yes. are, are gone. Right. Uh, you had to look at what historians would call ephemera, uh, sure. advertisements, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh I'd really be surprised if something from the town of Hodges, like Jackson Station, would have ads in the Greenwood Index Journal. It doesn't seem to be their kind of thing. Well, as a matter of fact, Gerald did place ads in the Greenwood Index Journal, and that was one source of uh, finding out about the musical acts that played there. He didn't start off uh, having live music. The, the music didn't come until uh, about, about 1982. He took over ownership of the depot in 75. But you're right. I had to do a lot of digging. The newspapers.com was a, a fabulous resource uh, focusing in on, on the southern newspapers. And so I just scrolled through uh, every Thursday edition of, of the Index Journal from the late 70s all the way up to the 1990s. And that was... Uh, that was my main source of in, of information on the bands that played there. But I also had a – it wasn't a, a complete archive. Um, there was a fellow by the name of Reggie Massey who was a good friend of Gerald and Steve, and he had a, 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 a file box which uh, Steve had given to him before he had passed away. And basically, it was just filled with different band contracts and promotional photographs and so on and so forth, newspaper clippings and concert flyers regarding Jackson Station. And so that was another source of information, that, too. That sounds like a historian's dream. Well, it really was. It, it definitely uh, made the book. I, I don't think I, I would have had a, a finished product like I have without it. But unfortunately, I think it's just a, a small sample of, of what was out there. When Gerald passed away, he left everything to Steve. And then when Steve passed away, uh, it was at his mother's house in Liberty. And unfortunately, I think a lot of that stuff ended up uh, either going to the dump or, you know, just uh, vanished 
somehow. That's the background. Let's let's start with the characters and who they were and how they decided to open what became one of the most famous honky-tonks in the upstate of South Carolina. Sure. Well, obviously, we need to start with uh, Gerald Jackson, who was born in 1946 in Greenwood County and was born and raised up in Hodges. He had an older sister, Ellen, and um, his father was Matthew Edgar Jackson, and his mother was Elizabeth Davis Jackson. Gerald's grandfather, Arthur Jackson, had operated a general store in Hodges in the early 20th century, 1930s, I believe, is my best guess for that. And when he passed away, the store was then taken over by Gerald's father and mother. This was the Jackson General Store at the corner of 25 and uh, 175. Unfortunately, Gerald's father died of a heart attack when Gerald was 13 years of age, uh, leaving his mother a widow. His mother tried to operate the general store on her own, but uh, couldn't do so. And so they ended up renting out the space to other people who continued to operate it as a business. Gerald went to Northside Middle School, and then he went to Greenwood High School, which was then located in Uptown Greenwood. He attended Lander College briefly, and then he shipped out to Vietnam. And he was a medic in the Navy, a Navy corpsman, and he was uh, associated with a Marine, uh, I'm not sure if you call it a company or a battalion or whatever, but his job basically was to tend to injured Marines on the battlefield. And so he did that. He saw a lot of conflict, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of death in Vietnam. And he also saw a number of uh, pretty amazing music clubs over there in Southeast Asia. He comes back to the States after his tour is over, and he has this dream of opening up a music club, opening up a blues club along the lines of, of what he had seen in Southeast Asia. And he, or, or yes, let's, let's stop a second. Sure. When you say a music club, let's decide. You know, let's describe what he saw in Asia. Well, it's not exactly clear what what he saw in Asia specifically. Um, you know, we know that the boys over there would engage in in R and R in 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 various places, and I think this is depicted in in films such as you know Full Metal Jacket and and uh, and other Vietnam era movies, but. Uh, you know, music clubs, blues clubs, um, you know, nothing very elaborate. And he knew that he, he wanted to open up some sort of a venue, but the bands actually didn't come until 1982. It, it took him a long time to renovate the depot, and we'll have to talk a little bit later about how the depot was moved from its original location and, and how he, he worked on the depot. But... Eventually, he decided to have live music there, and in 1982, he started the ball rolling with, uh, with, with music on Friday nights. The depot itself is a very important part of the story. It was old. Mm. The actual date was something that was debatable, yes. whether it was pre-Civil War or it was during Reconstruction. At mm. any rate, it was a venerable structure. Hand- yes. With hand-hewn timbers, wooden pegs, mm. and the like. Exactly. This was the old Greenville to Columbia Railroad Depot. The tracks first went through Hodges in 1848, but the depot itself was built in 1870. Passenger trains still weren't going through Hodges, were then I, I wonder even about freight trains going through. I believe that uh, the passenger service stopped in in the in the nineteen fifties, and freight train service stopped in the nineteen uh, sixties, and so um, it's it's a really incredible story. After after Gerald got back from Vietnam, he he, he worked at uh, Witten Village in Clinton, which is the center to uh, serve people with special needs, children with special needs. Um, but he still had this dream of, of, of opening up this, some sort of a club. And he had the property. He just needed some sort of a venue. 
And one day he was in Hodges and he saw some railroad men milling around uh, Corley's general store, uh, now which is known as the Hodges One Stop. And Gerald went up to them and he, and he, and he asked them uh, what they were doing and, and he asked them what their intentions were uh, for, for this uh, old railroad depot. And they said, well, you can have it. <laughs> you can have it for a dollar if, if, if you move it off the property within six months. And so that was a, a, a deal that Gerald couldn't turn down. And so with the help of some friends, he constructed a 140-foot trailer. And uh, now, they, oh, he's a trailer, obviously steel beams. Yes, yes. And uh, they managed to uh, to elevate this thing and put it on the trailer. They had to remove utility poles in Hodges to get the thing through and out uh, the three quarters of a mile or so out out to the highway where the Jackson family property is. So, so you, you've got a guy who's who's trained as a medic. He's not a mover. I mean, you're talking probably a building that's 100,000 pounds or more? Yes, indeed. He, he got some guy out of Anderson to help him with with the move, um, but it, 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 was a, it was a serious event, and there's some great photographs of it. I mean, that just sounds like rural South Carolina, I'm going to get the job done. <laughs> I would say so. I don't need to hire such and such van lines. I can do it myself. I can do it myself. And so they moved it out to the highway and they put it on these, uh, you know, these 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 bricks, these these mason bricks, and it still stands there today. Daniel, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Daniel Harrison about his new book, Live at Jackson Station: Music, Community, and Tragedy in a Southern Blues Bar. All right, Daniel, we've got the old railroad station moved to Gerald's property. Yes. But something's got to be done to to make it work as a venue. I mean, you've got you've got a structure, but it still still takes a while and he's doing all the work himself. He's doing the work himself, Steve. His 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 boyfriend is is helping him out. Mama Jackson, Elizabeth Jackson um is also assisting. Um she was the financial backer of the club. The Jackson family home was right across the street location, uh, you know, where the depot was. And so they would stay over at uh, at Elizabeth Jackson's house, and then they would uh, go across the street and work on the depot. Gerald taught himself basic carpentry, plumbing, um, a little bit of electrical work, and, and, and so on and so forth. Steve lend a hand, and um, a lot of other friends in the area did. And so they renovate the station for, as a venue, they make use of what had been segregated waiting rooms, and then they create an apartment upstairs for themselves, right? Yes. Eventually, they moved out of Elizabeth uh, Jackson's house and actually into the depot. Um, The depot had no air conditioning. It had uh, the only sources of heat came from two barren wood-burning stoves. Barron was a company out of Atlanta. And so in the wintertime, they would live up in a loft that they built up kind of in the rafters of the depot. And there was a full bathroom up there, commode and a little apartment. And then in the summertime, they lived down in the basement of the, of the club to keep cool. The station was built up on piers, so was it actually underground or just, I'm trying to, you say the basement, I guess. It wasn't really underground. There was kind of a, a half staircase off the, off the kitchen going down into kind of the ground level. Okay. All right. Of the, of well, the club. And of course, for the club, you could open the freight doors. They were still there, so that would give circulation for the people coming into the to the club exactly. So on on summer on, on summer nights, uh, they would open up the freight doors to get the cross breeze, and they would have some they would have uh, some ceiling fans, and and it was quite cool in there actually, all things considered. Yeah. And a big open deck, a big open deck on the back, and they had uh, a, a, a couple of cows out there as well, and uh, it was a lot of fun for the patrons to come and hang out on the deck and drink a beer and. Watch Gerald talk to and feed the cows, and the trains would go by. And yeah. H- have you actually been in that building? 
I have been in the building, and it is uh, remarkably well-kept. It's, it's remarkably dry. They built those depots very well, uh, the you know, heavy-duty lumber. Okay. So we, we've got the structure now. Mm. What are we going to do with it? What's Gerald going to do with it? He's got it finished. He's got a bar. He did put a bar in there, so he had that in mind to begin right. with. So initially, it's functioned as kind of a private club of sorts. And um, in, in, in 1978, uh, after three years of, of renovating the depot, it was um, up to snuff for, you know, just basic socializing and activities. Uh, they had a Halloween party in 1978 to, to, to get things rolling. Strom Thurmond actually celebrated a birthday uh, there in 1978, which is kind of interesting. But eventually, they decided to have live music, and that happened in, in 1982. Drink Small was one of the first uh, acts that played there, as was Reverend Billy Wirtz, a piano player out of Florida. Okay, so it's opening up. And one of the important things in terms of a bar in the early 1980s, we need to remember that the drinking age in South Carolina for beer and wine was still 18. So in terms of attracting a younger crowd, you've got two colleges within easy driving distance. You've got Lander and you've got Erskine. This is true, yes. Erskine was in due west, and that was about 10 miles north of Hodges. And then you had Lander College, now Lander University, down in Greenwood. And so the students would sort of meet in the middle. Faculty from both schools would attend. But it, it, it wasn't just a student hangout. It was the – you had people from all over. It was really the late-night establishment for – the South Carolina upstate, and people would drive in from Charlotte. They would come in from Athens. They would come up from Columbia and and from Charleston, and sometimes they would still be partying until 5 in the morning. It was open all week, but music was weekend, Friday and Saturday nights, right? Yes. Open all week. The hours were uh, 5 to 5, Monday through Thursday. And let's remind people that's 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. Monday through Monday through Thursday. On Friday night, it was open from 5 p.m. until you wanted to go home on, on Saturday, and then it was closed on, on Sunday. Okay. So it's, it's attracting notice, and from the beginning, it's a very diverse crowd of folks who come out there. Yes, it operated a bit like a, a speakeasy early on. You kind of had to know Gerald or know someone who knew Gerald to gain access to it. But eventually it was, it was opened up to the public. Gerald was gay, and his boyfriend was gay too, uh, bisexual actually. Um, and uh, Jackson Station was known for being a very welcoming place uh, to people of all sorts of different identities. Informants or interviewees told me that uh, Jackson Station didn't know race. It didn't know class. Everybody was welcome there. It was a very ecumenical place. Well, you know, that's unusual in the American South, even in the 1980s. It's particularly unusual about a rural community. But after I read your book, I went back. It, it This struck a chord with me. And I went back to John Edgar Wideman's uh, memoir, Father Along. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that. An African-American writer whose grandparents had come from Greenwood County. And I'm just going to be Abbeville County, which mm. is right, which is right next door. Sure. And he came back in the early 1990s, and this is the way he described race relations in Abbeville County, which is not very different from Greenwood County. Used to be, uh, yeah. yeah, Greenwood was part of Abbeville <laughs> County. Um, he he wanted to. He's staying at the Holiday Inn in. Abbeville. And he said, when my father and I inquire about a place in Greenville other than the Holiday Inn Lounge where we might sit down and enjoy a drink, the clerk said there's black clubs and white clubs and mixed. No problem with y'all doing going in just about any of them depends upon what you're looking for. Now, to me, that sounded like Jackson Station. What year was that? This is the early 1990s. Okay. 
Well, I, and I, you think he was actually referring to Jackson Station? No, I, I don't yeah. know that he was. Yeah. But just the way, he, and this was a black, there were a black clerk and a mm-hmm. white clerk on the desk at the Holiday Inn. Right. And there, the phrase, there's black clubs and white clubs and mixed. Mixed clubs, yes, yes. You can find whatever you're looking for. That that sounds accurate. You know, there were a number of just these tiny little blues clubs, music clubs, you know, dotted not just in throughout Greenwood County, but, um, you know, throughout South Carolina. And I, I think I, I would urge if people are interested to, to do some digging in their own communities there, because I, I think there's some good stories to be told. So we've started getting live bands. And yes, you've got the two men. It's their bar. Mm. But Mother Jackson is pretty important. She actually does the contracts, right, with the band? She she recruits the bands? Well, she doesn't recruit the bands. Mama Jackson, Elizabeth Jackson, has a, has a financial stake in the club. The actual nature of that stake remains somewhat opaque. But people have told me that, that she was the source of, of the money. And that Gerald uh, and, and Gerald admits that he could have never opened up the club without her. Um, so basically, Gerald would recruit the bands. He would book the bands. Uh, he he wanted to interact directly with the musicians. He didn't like to deal with any agents and so on and so forth. But then Elizabeth Jackson would take a cut uh, after they had paid the bands, and and typically you would. It would be, I don't know, maybe $500 for uh, three sets of music, the first beginning at about 1130 at night, and then the last one ending at about five o'clock in the morning. She would take the proceeds from the door after the bands were paid, and then Gerald would take the proceeds from the bar and the food. All right. There, there, so there was an admission charge or a cover charge when they came in, right? Yes, which ranged from about $3 to $10 over the course of the time. And as all clubs did in that day, and I think they still do, you got stamped with an ink stamp to prove you had paid at the door. Yes. And Gerald used his medic stamp from Vietnam for that purpose, which was kind of a reminder of his Vietnam days. Once they start opening up for music... Jackson Station gets a reputation in the music world, and it becomes a major stop on the rhythm and blues circuit, does it not? It really does. Uh, word started to spread fairly quickly, and you had bands, I think the list, your listeners have probably heard of the Georgia Satellites. Uh, that was an early band that played at Jackson Station. They clued in a blues uh, guitarist by the name of Tinsley Ellis to Jackson Station. Tinsley then clued in widespread panic about Jackson Station, and they showed up in 1986 and played nine shows there, um, 86, 87, and 88. You had a number of blues acts. We mentioned Drink Small already. Fats Jackson out of Atlanta played there very frequently. Also, Sweet Betty, who was a gospel singer out of Atlanta. She played there a lot. You had a number of new wave bands out of the Athens and Atlanta area. Love Tractor was a band uh, contemporaneous with REM, and, and they played there a couple of times. And the Swimming Pool Cues out of Atlanta played there. You also had uh, all-female bands. You know, Gerald was very open to having diverse bookings, and there was a a band out of Whitmire called The Sensible Pumps, and it was an all-female blues band, and and they were a real hit there as well. We've got those bands, and you did touch base with with those folks, some of them anyway, for for your book. And I guess it's still amazing to me that this club in Hodges, South Carolina, really was part of a main circuit. They said they played Charlotte, then they played Hodges, then they played either Athens or Atlanta, Mm. and on down to Birmingham. Yes. And this was, what I find fascinating about this period is I I think it was really, in in some respects, it was was the heyday of the time of of the touring musician. You know, every, all live music has obviously been shut down now because of COVID, but 
even before that, you know, the whole nature of, of, of live music had been cha- has changed dramatically since the 1990s as we've moved away from kind of the album format into more of a digital sort of a format. Before COVID, when you had live music, people would kind of fly in and fly out, but they wouldn't try to eke out a living going from sort of town to town to town and finding uh, different gigs to play. But that's exactly how it worked at Jackson Station. And so you had traveling working class musicians who would be looking for an appropriate music venue. And if they could get to Jackson Station um, for a Friday night, then they could maybe get up to Charlotte the next night. And then maybe after that, they could they could go up to Hickory and then maybe to Virginia and then plug into another circuit. And Gerald was known and and very respected for taking care of the acts for for taking care of 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 the musicians for for treating them right and that didn't always happen uh for these working musicians on the circuit you have a quote from the reverend billy wirtz and I, how he described what you, this circuit uh, the Reverend Billy Wirtz suggests we should think of Jackson Station as a latter-day version of the Chitlin Circuit. And the Chitlin Circuit was the network of black music clubs that existed across the country during the Jim Crow era. And there was a very famous one of those clubs down in near Myrtle Beach. Charlie's Place. Many people would argue that that's where the shag originated. Uh, and, of course, Charlie's was an unusual club for its time, too, back in the 1940s and 50s, where white and black patrons went there at the same time. They would go there to mingle together. And, and, and Jackson Station was similar because you had people from just so many different walks of life, so many different backgrounds, so many different identities would come to Jackson Station and, and, and co-mingle and socialize together. Daniel, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Daniel Harrison about his book, Live at Jackson Station, Music, Community, and Tragedy in a Southern Blues Bar. All right, let's talk a minute about about the, the Chitlin Circuit, because, and certainly about Charlie's, because it was also a nationally known club. Mm. Two different eras, but... The musicians of that time knew exactly where those places were, and they and they not only wanted to play them, they did play them. They did, and they they looked forward to playing Jackson Station. Uh, Gerald took care of the acts. He put them up at, at the Greenwood Motel. He would feed them. He would he would give them drinks, and uh, it was a a feeling of coming home I think for a lot of these musicians and you, you can imagine life on the road is is, is is not always very glamorous or as romantic as you know the songs about the road make it out to be and the musicians really appreciated the care that Gerald and Steve put into the club and and also how they just managed to to provide a, a second home on the road for a lot of these yeah. folks. Well, you you did note that the club was open. There were black patrons, but it seems like back black patrons usually came just when there were black bands. Yes. Uh, you know, Greenwood County has not always been the most racially tolerant of places. Uh you're well familiar with Benjamin Mays, who grew up in Epworth, South Carolina, and, and he describes the vicious nature of the racism in Greenwood County in the early part of the 20th century. Now, obviously, that, that subsided um, as we got in through, you know, after the, the post-war period and so on and so forth. African-Americans were welcomed at at Jackson Station. Ultimately, it was a fairly white crowd, but it wasn't a completely white crowd. And certainly on the occasions that they did have uh, black musicians, Nappy Brown in particular, Drink Small, African-Americans would turn out in droves. A part of the story is the end, which Mm. doesn't really happen on April the 7th, 1990, but that's when... uh, the tragedy in your title occurs. Yes, a very, a very vicious attack took place in the parking lot um, in the early morning hours on April seventh, nineteen ninety, and Gerald was assaulted by a patron 
in the parking lot and, and was left for dead. He was assaulted with a bush axe, and he wasn't just assaulted. The bush axe went into his head. It went into his head about four inches deep. It was lodged in the uh, right side of his skull. And in the meantime, 150 to 200 patrons in the in the club don't realize what's going on. No, they really don't. Um, on that particular evening, uh, there was a band called the Legendary Blues Band was playing, and they used to be called the Muddy Waters Backup Band because they had uh, been backing up Muddy Waters for a year. They had been featured um, in the movie The Blues Brothers. They had played with the Rolling Stones. They had played with Bob Dylan. And they were finishing up their set at about 3 o'clock in, in the morning when Ward got out that Gerald had been in an argument and then later on involved in some sort of an altercation. And so people started to, to come out of the of the club to see what, what was going on. And um, the two people involved in the incident, uh, Terry Stogner and Craig Douglas, hightailed it out of the parking lot in a, in a white Dodge truck and, and went back to Greenwood. And a number of other people started to attend to Jackson, uh, who was bleeding profusely in the parking lot. And they managed to keep him alive until the medics came. He does live, and he ends up in the VA hospital. Yes. There's a trial, but what happens to the club after Gerald is hospitalized? Well, the club actually opened for business on the Saturday, which was kind of surprising to me when I when I learned about that. But um, you know, business had to go on. Saturday nights, the club always closed early because of the blue laws, which uh, necessitated that they that they couldn't stay open uh, past midnight on Sunday. So they didn't usually have bands on Saturday night, or if they did, they had to they had to finish up sooner than they usually did. But they tried to keep the club going. You know, Gerald's long-term boyfriend um, tried to manage the club uh, with some help of, of of some of the employees and friends, people like Dirk Armstrong and and, and Tersh Harley. And uh, Gerald's mother was was still somewhat involved. Um, but they were also spending a lot of time uh, with Gerald first at, at Self Regional Hospital in Greenwood, and then later on at a couple of different hospitals in, in Columbia before they ended up going to the VA hospital. So all three principals associated with the club were, were now sort of missing in action, and, and they didn't have enough time to devote to the club. And so eventually it, it had to shut down, and it, they made it through October, but then it, it shut down in, in October of 1990, uh, a number of, of other People tried to resurrect the club. I think there were three iterations of that, uh, the last of which ended in in uh, 1995. But there was just something very special about Gerald Jackson. He was a very charismatic man. He was known for having a bartender's ability to strike up a conversation with anybody. He made everyone feel very welcome and at home. And this was his this was his baby. You know, he had thought about opening up a club. Um, ever since he had been in the Vietnam War, and uh, you really needed someone with that level of, of commitment and, and dedication, I think, to make it work. But also, the times had changed, and you know, you mentioned the drinking age was 18 until 1984, and then slowly it went to 21. Even back in 1984, you had a number of youngsters who who would use their older brother or sister's uh, ID, a, a cast-off ID, to get in. So uh, Gerald didn't appreciate the fact, but you had some people who might have been 16 and 17 drinking in uh, and, and, and partying at Jackson Station. But that all changed in the mid-'80s, and so you had fewer people in the area who would be of legal drinking age to go to the club. Also, kind of societal norms, you know, regarding uh, the consumption of, of alcohol and you know driving after the fact changed. Uh, the police, I think, started to get a lot more, a lot more interested in you know cracking down on on drinking and driving. Um, Strom Thurmond's daughter was uh, w- was killed by a drunk driver, and so that brought a lot of attention to the issue. And so, um, you really are, are talking about kind of a a, a uh, a shift in the mindset um, 
for a lot of people in society regarding you know going out to clubs and having a good time and things. And so within a, what, a couple of years after the incident with Gerald, Jackson Station closes. Well, it kind of closed and then it opened back up again. Uh, Mama Jackson still owned the property and so she would rent it out to different locals um, for a number of different uh, business interests and things. It, it served as an auction house uh, briefly. It served as a flea market briefly. And then you had a couple of attempts to open it back up as a club, but it was just never the same. Well. That's the, the story there of Jackson Station. Let's continue with the story of of what happened to Gerald. Yeah. There was a trial of his assailants. There was, yes. And, um, you know, the book really has kind of five inter- interweaving kind of narratives to it. Um, you know, one has to do with, with kind of the, the history of, of the depot itself in relation to the railway you know, system in the greater Greenwood area. And then there's another part, which is kind of like a sociological study of, of this blues bar. Another part of the book fo- focuses specifically uh, on how the club impacted the careers of um, different musicians who played there, in particular, uh, Widespread Panic, Nappy Brown, The Sensible Pumps, and others. Another part of the book looks at the relationship between Gerald and Steve over the years. And then the fifth narrative basically addresses the attack on Gerald, investigates the extent to which it might be described as a hate crime, and then also the subsequent trial and the outcome of that. Gerald and his boyfriend, Steve, you've mentioned, were out. Their relationship was was open, but the older generation, I think Steve's parents never really quite got used accepted to the idea this is this is true, and they were two proud gay men living in the South at a time when being gay was actually a felony offense. Uh, it still is a felony offense, actually, according to the South Carolina Code of Laws. The buggery statute is uh, amazingly still on the books as as we are speaking today. But as you mentioned, on both sides, Elizabeth Jackson always thought that, that you know, Gerald was kind of just going through a phase <laughs> and uh, she would uh, try to hook him up with, you know, various heterosexual, you know, women in associated with, with the club. And Steve's father, Austin Bryant, never could admit to himself that that his son was gay and many people never knew that 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 Steve was gay until his funeral actually you say that this might have been a hate crime mm-hmm. but in the description of the altercation you've got two guys who had already been drinking before they got to the club right yes and so you had Terry Stogner who was the assailant and then his buddy Craig Douglas were drinking down in Greenwood at a bar called the Legends Bar and then they went over to a place called Sports Break until about 1.45 in the morning and and then they headed up to Jackson Station. So they had been consuming alcohol for a number of hours um, before this, this, this attack took place. Mrs. Jackson is on the door. Mrs. Jackson is on the door, yes. That is, that is a, a undeniable fact. I've been told that these guys uh, objected to paying a cover charge. They, they, they showed up to the club at about two o'clock in the morning and Mrs. Jackson was still on the door. She was in, she was quite insistent that people paid the cover charge, you know, even if it was kind of getting fairly late into the night. And she demanded a cover charge from these men. Apparently they refused to pay and so she she sent them packing and then they snuck in through the back way and then they were kicked out of the club they of course denied this at the trial but best that i can piece together that's that's what happened and then for some reason gerald goes out to the parking lot 
Right. And so the, Douglas and Stogner were in, in the club, and uh, Gerald's mother pointed them out to Gerald and said, hey, they shouldn't be in here because I, I, I sent them packing. And then Gerald, with the help of the bouncer, escorted them outside of the club, and then that's when they got into some sort of an argument and Gerald violated his own security protocol, which was never to follow a patron out into the parking lot. But he did so ostensibly to sort of calm the situation down, but it actually escalated. So there is a trial, and uh, Stogner is convicted. He is convicted of assault and battery of a high and aggravated nature. And at the time, the penalty for that crime uh, well, first of all, that crime was a misdemeanor, amazingly enough, um, but the maximum penalty was was 10 years in state prison. They had tried, the, the, the prosecuting attorney had tried to um, get him on the charge of assault and battery with attempt to kill because it was quite obvious to, to him and to others that if you hit someone in the head with a bush axe, uh, you're trying to end their life. But there really wasn't enough evidence. It all came down to issue to kind of the, the question of of motive and, and, and whether or not this was kind of a, a crime of passion in the heat of the moment sort of a thing or if it was premeditated. And the prosecution couldn't really prove the, the premeditated uh, aspect to it. And so the jury came down on with the uh, assault and battery with of a high and aggravated nature. Um, but he... Ended up, he only ended up serving about four and a half years of his time. And Gerald, as we, t- we mentioned earlier, ended up in the VA hospital, and part of his rehabilitation was painting. Yes, he, he, was, he, he was very lucky uh, in the fact that, that he was a veteran. He was taken very good care of at the Dorn Hospital, and there was an art therapy program which had kind of been put into place uh, while he was there and so he was he was completely paralyzed I, I don't think we've really spoken about that but he was a paraplegic essentially quadriplegic actually so, so he he painted with the brushes with in his mouth no he had limited use of 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 his right hand and so he would he would paint with his hand they they actually made special uh, paint brushes uh, for him he was a Mason, and he had some contacts uh, in the Masonic community who gave him all of his artistic uh, materials and things. But that was a, a really uh, amazing source of, you know, relief for him to be able to paint and express himself in that way. Um, he had his own room at the VA hospital, which was specially air-conditioned because one of the consequences of the attack is that he couldn't regulate his own body temperature anymore. So he got very, very hot, and he had to keep his room very, very cold to, to compensate. He had two televisions, and his room was just adorned with you know photographs and paintings and, and uh, posters and so on and so forth. But he was taken very, very good care of at the hospital. Steve actually moved down from Greenwood to Columbia and lived a few miles away and actually got a, a job at, at the VA hospital so he could keep an eye on on Gerald. And um, and that's where, that's where Gerald spent uh, basically the last 20 years of his life. I hate, I hate this, Daniel, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. It has to happen sooner or later. It, 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 it has to happen. Um, what kind of obituary or memorial would you say about Jackson Station, the institution? It was just such a fascinating, eccentric club. Um, you know, I was, I was talking to Tinsley Ellis, and, and, and he made a really good comment. He said that, you know, when you go to a place like the House of Blues in Myrtle Beach or elsewhere, they're trying to mimic or imitate what Jackson Station was. And Jackson Station was the real thing. It was a roadhouse in the South Carolina backcountry. It was really a throwback to a different era. Uh, You would see musicians in there, uh, some of whom learned from, you know, the great blues musicians dating back to the turn of the century and it was uh, like entering a different world in many respects 
I think that we don't have a lot of places like that anymore. Um, it was a very cosmopolitan place in a in an area which is not known for its cosmopolitanism. It was a very welcoming, accepting place in a culture which too often is known for its bigotry and its closed-mindedness. And the people who, who went there have amazing memories of the place that still live on today. I was not lucky enough to go there, but I've experienced it vicariously through my research and hopefully through the book. I will perpetuate the story of Jackson Station, and perhaps it can be a model for community relations uh, in the future. Well, you could always have a second career in addition to being a college professor. You can open your own Jackson Station. It has crossed my mind. Okay. It has crossed my mind for sure. Daniel Harrison, the author of Live at Jackson Station, Music, Community, and Tragedy in a Southern Blues Bar. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. I really enjoyed it. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. The story of Jackson Station and the men who created it is an interesting one. In its way, Jackson Station in the little upcountry town of Hodges, South Carolina, was an important part of the rhythm and blues circuit in the 1980s and 1990s. Its influence went far beyond South Carolina, just as did Charlie's Place down near Myrtle Beach in the 1940s and the 1950s. Both of these small clubs helped create music genre in South Carolina and the country. And folks, that is a very interesting part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.